This past week I was in North Carolina teaching at a writers' conference. There were 510 writers there, and I think I talked to 150 of them or more. <clears throat> so my mind is mush. Uh, uh, Monday was only a 12-hour day. Tuesday was 17 hours. Wednesday was 16 hours. And then flying home and losing three hours. So I'm somewhere over the Rockies right now in my mind. It's trying to adjust. Meanwhile, trying to prepare this. Um, reading tons of commentary material while on an airplane. <clears throat> It's always interesting, so we're going to take our best guess at this, especially when, here's the introduction, John MacArthur, no one would voluntarily preach this passage. <laughs> Basically, you have to be forced into it. Another pastor write, all commentators agree that this particular passage, Galatians 4, 21 to 31, is the hardest passage in the entire book of Galatians, unless you're very familiar with the Old Testament. Most people skip right over this and go into chapter 5 where you find the good stuff. So, uh, that's the uh, <laughs> introduction you may be very familiar with it, you may not be, and that's okay. That's why we're here to explore these, these words. <clears throat> Let's first just read the passage together, because then we kind of have to back up and roll through it again, because if I try to pick it apart as we go, you kind of lose the big picture. So, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Confused yet, by the way? <laughs> for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the ones who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Is that perfectly clear? <laughs> I mean... After meeting with writers for a week and having people pitch their ideas or hand me their beginning of their nonfiction or their, or their novel or whatever, we have a, a common problem of novelists is assuming the reader knows what you're talking about. And they'll throw in seven or eight characters suddenly into the story on the first few pages and you're going, who is this person and why are they here? 
And they're going, well, oh, right. I took out the section that explained who they were. I, you don't know? No, I've never seen this before. So we have, well, how was it phrased here? This one fellow wrote it. He said, trying to figure out how this makes sense, you've got Abraham, a slave woman, a free woman, Hagar, Sarah, Mount Zion, Arabia, the Jerusalem that's present, the Jerusalem that's above, children of the flesh, children of the promise. When you pull out commentaries on the passage, you find an equal level of confusion, even among those who have done their best to look at this portion of Scripture. We have to back up a little bit to put it all in context. If you just walk into this passage blind, you're going to be a little, what is he talking about and why is he even talking about it? Because he's been spending the first three chapters of this handwritten letter written to the Galatians saying, why are you being deceived by the Judaizers who say you have to add something to the salvation of Christ through faith alone? You would think by this point, if you've been reading along in Galatians, they would have already understood. But it's like any good teacher. You make your point, and then you kind of look at the class. Huh. They didn't get it. All right? Then you make the point again, and you look at the class and realize a third of them got it. Then you make the point again, and you're oh, two-thirds have got it. Now you make the point again, and you go, ah, now we can have a test. Because you say it over and over and over again. Now, we've explained it, we've expounded it, we get the idea that he's contrasting law versus grace. But this time, he's going in another direction that he's not really done before. And he's done something, which is interesting. Um, Let me find it. Uh, I have so many things to read to you. Um, (laughs) Here it is. John MacArthur makes a comment. He said, I want to say something before we get into the text. He quote, I haven't read any commentator who actually brought this up. Paul is writing to Gentiles. The Gentile church. And he's throwing all these Abrahamic elements at them. Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, Arabia, Sinai, Jerusalem. The fact that he's talking in this language with virtually no explanation suggests that he taught them all of this already. This isn't new to them. That's why he can say, well, like, such and so. And they're like, oh yeah. I remember him talking about that. See, we approach this as if, um, you know, we've never seen any of this before, and so we have to explain it. Well, he's assuming their knowledge. But remember, they're Gentiles. He doesn't rehearse the story. There would be some Jews there, of course, but it's primarily Gentile believers. 
and keep this in mind. What Bible is Paul using? Well, it's the King James Bible. What? Of course, it was re-inspired. It was, that's the one Paul used, isn't it? Well, no, there was no New Testament. If you remember in our chronological timeline, Matthew hasn't even been written yet. Mark may have been composed by now and was circulating or some form of it, but there's no New Testament. This is the first letter of Paul, even. Yeah, there's some theories that James has been circulating already, which is why we're studying James next. Uh, but So what can he refer to? He can only refer to the Old Testament. That's why when I was here two weeks ago and mentioned lovely Andy Stanley's comment from the pulpit saying that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament so we don't offend new believers or people seeking because it's just so confusing. Seriously? Okay, let's do that. Let's throw out the Ten Commandments. That would be a great idea. Paul himself does not unhitch himself from the Old Testament. In fact, he uses it as the foundation to explain salvation through, through faith alone, grace alone. All right. So we look at the passage. We come along, and you know, we're talking. Uh, Abraham has two sons, and we can go through that, but I want to jump into verse 24 real quickly and look at one particular word there. I guess you, my guess is you can figure out what word that is the word allegorically. This word is. The only place in the entire New Testament that this word is used. So, we have to look at the Greek word and figure out why it was translated as allegorically. Well, here's the Greek word. Allegoreo. In other words, they didn't translate it. Because they don't know what it means. It's the Greek word allegory. And they translated it as allegory. Alright, so I need to ask the class. What is an allegory? Any ideas? Chronicles of Narnia. What's an allegory? Pilgrim's Progress. What's an allegory? You tell a story to explain something else. Now, there are, I don't know, all sorts of schools of thought and all sorts of controversy about this because they're saying, well, my gosh, you can't use it, say that the Bible is allegorical because if you do that, that means you're opening up the entirety of Scripture that it isn't really saying what it means. That it has another meaning. Uh, let me find it here. Rabbinical study uh, said there were four meanings in every passage of Scripture. This is a Jewish 
approach to study of Scripture. And they, I'm going to read them in order of their importance, starting with lowest to highest. The first meaning is the peshat, or its simple or literal meaning. This is according to Jewish rabbis. Second is the ramaz. That's the suggested meaning. Third is the derush, which is the meaning deduced by investigation. And fourthly, the best is sod, the allegorical meaning. So even in a lot of rabbinical study, their idea was to search for the hidden meaning in the text. So you might say, oh, okay, so Jesus spoke in parables. Were those allegories? Well, there were more illustrations because he explained it. An allegory just kind of states it and then moves on. You notice Paul here doesn't really explain it too much. He's kind of draws the picture. Um, in Alexandria, a early Jewish scholar in the first century BC named Philo started an entire school of allegorical interpretation. And it became very well known later when Christianity came and Alexandria became a hub of, 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 of uh, theological thought and investigation. The Christians there, the Christian scholars, co-opted Philo's philosophy and created an allegorical school of interpretation. They had some interesting things like, uh, let's see one here, the two coins that the Good Samaritan gave to the innkeeper, they weren't coins. It was baptism in the Lord's Supper. That's what it was really talking about. Or this one. Job's seven sons weren't actually his seven sons. They were the twelve apostles. I'm not quite sure how they did that math, but that's what they mean. And the, and Job's friends were the heretics, and his 7,000 sheep were God's people, and his 3,000 camels were the depraved Gentiles. You know what? It's just like, okay, let's just make it all up. Now, there is a strength in the, using the power of imagination. As long as it makes sense... I mean, you can have some wonderful, interesting things, but you don't say that this is the actual meaning that God meant. Because then you're in danger. And that's what a lot of these scholars are talking about when they say, oh, Paul is going off on this thing of, of uh, allegorical teaching. Well, it's actually a rabbinical exercise. It's not unusual for them to do it. It's just he's never done it before. At least not this blatantly to use a word like allegoreo in uh, speaking to it. So, we look at that, and then we look at the point that Paul is trying to make is to contrast law versus grace. I said that in the preamble. Let's listen to what Spurgeon has to say about that. There cannot be a greater difference in the world between two things than there are between law and grace. 
And yet, strange to say, while the things are diametrically opposed and essentially different from each other, the human mind is so depraved and the intellect, even when blessed by the Spirit, has become so turned aside from right judgment that one of the most difficult things in the world is to discriminate properly between law and grace. He who knows the difference and always recollects it has grasped the marrow of divinity. So with that as our backdrop, let's look at the actual story. You have to go back into Genesis. And I, you, know, you may know this before, although it's interesting, I'll bet if we walk through our congregation, our own congregation, and just asked people, could you tell me the story of Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac? They have, I imagine that many of us would kind of go, well, I know they're in the Bible. <laughs> and that's about it. At least they know that much. But like many things, there are so many details, so many stories in Scripture, the actual breakdown of it all, we're not quite clear. So here, Paul is making the assumption that we know the story. So when he tells this allegory, we kind of go, oh, right, I get it. So we have to look at it. You have, when Abraham was 75 years old, he was told to go to Canaan. And he takes off and goes to Canaan. That's in Genesis chapter 12. Around Genesis chapter 15, he has the promise from God that through his seed, he, the, the, the nations will be fulfilled or whatever. I don't remember the exact wording. And, hit. and Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a key point. That's the whole point of Galatians chapter 3. Ten years later, they still don't have progeny. They don't, still don't have a son. Abraham's 85. Sarah, seeing this and wanting this, and even it's legal, she suggests, why don't you bring Hagar, the slave woman, into our household as a wife and have the son through her? Because I can't give you your heir. So that happens. Age 86 for Abraham. Hagar gets present, pregnant. This is Genesis chapter 16. And Sarah gets jealous. It's a problem. And she is banished. Remember? She's tossed out in the desert. God comes to her, gives her a promise. We'll take care of her. They come back. But then, at age 99, 13 years later... Abraham is given the promise by God that he will have a son. Of course, he doesn't. He's not quite sure. He talks to Sarah. Sarah's, yeah, right. I'm 90 years old. I, my mom is 94. I'd she'd think she'd be pretty upset. <laughs> anyway. You have to be 94 to be pretty upset. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Yeah, 64 would make you pretty upset. <laughs> uh, and, you know, anyway, well, we've got to know the story. 
She has a son. They name him Isaac. And now we have a problem. The heir of the promise is in the same household as the heir through the flesh, through their impatience. Ishmael is 13, 14 years old, um, thereabouts, from what we can ascertain from all that. And at age three is the official um, weaning ceremony. And what we find in Genesis chapter 21 is Ishmael begins to mock little Isaac. He can't defend himself from his teenage brother. And Sarah says, we need to get rid of them. This is the problem. And Abraham agrees. Ishmael's cast out. So we have the story now. It's not exactly one of the uh, headlines that you want to put in as good, good Abraham and good, good Sarah, but it is part of the story. This is what makes the Bible so wonderful. If it was all happiness and joy, we'd have a Joel Osteen book. You know? We would have something that's wonderful and positive all the time. Instead, all the dirty laundry of Abraham's family is laid out. They really messed up. They should have believed God from the beginning, but they lost the patience and created this separation. So Paul uses this story as an illustration of the promise of of, um, righteousness through the promise rather than righteousness through works or the law. He makes the contrast. So you have to go down verse 23. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, but the son of the free woman, Sarah, was born through the promise. The two women are the two covenants. The covenant of the law, the covenant of grace. Now, if you recall, back when we were studying chapter 3, the law was put into place not so that people could become righteous. The law was put into place to show people that they had no ability to keep it on their own. There is nothing you can do to achieve salvation. It can only come through faith. Faith begets righteousness. Faith in Christ begets righteousness, not faith in keeping the law perfectly. It's just not possible. So you have these two ideas, these two covenants. One is from Sinai, the law, bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. By the way, if you wonder where Arabia is, not Saudi Arabia. That's our mind where we put things in a map. It's basically that entire region. If you have, you know, a typical wonderful map of Israel, Arabia can cover this whole area. This, it's all of this, because we feel bigger Mount Sinai somewhere down in this peninsula, somewhere down in here, and Saudi Arabia is somewhere over here. So it's the whole region. Meaning, and if you remember, 
Paul spent time in Arabia after he had his encounter on the Damascus Road, and Damascus is way up here. And so somewhere he spent some time in this region. And like many things, the borders keep moving. So at one time, this might be called Arabia. Another time, it might be called something else. It's like my heritage is German. My dad is pure German. We looked it all up, and we figured it out that technically, the family comes from East Germany, but it's now Poland. We're like, we're not Polish. (laughs) We're German. Well, at the time, they were German. So there are German-speaking Poles because the border keeps moving over time. It says, fresh from Europe, probably a lot of spots all over Europe that suddenly this, for 400 years, we were this. For the next years, we were that. How's us? Hmm? Every few years was going back. Every few years. I mean, just so. What are you? Uh, we're us. You know, we become our own tribe that everybody wants to fight over because we're so special. Anyway, that's one way to look at it. So, Sinai's in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now, the word "corresponds" is interesting. Uh, it's actually, let me find the word here, it is the Greek word sunstoikai. Sunstoikai. Which means um, in sequence. So it's what corresponds. This comes this, then comes this, then comes this. So when you have a list you end up realizing that what he's saying is that Hagar equals Ishmael equals Sinai equals Jerusalem equals the flesh, which equals the law, which equals bondage, which equals condemnation. So you can see the sequence or the corresponding evidence where he's trying to make this connection to the law is represented by Hagar and this... um, this lack of promise. This is following the flesh. Whereas those who follow the Spirit right there in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. Now, that's a really confusing statement. Because he just said we have the present Jerusalem. Well, where did Jerusalem come into all this? Doggone it, Paul. Would you come here and explain it to us? No. You leave it to Steve to figure it out 2,000 years later, and I have no idea why he did it this way. I would not have written it like this. I would have crossed out and used track changes in the Word document and said, please explain. (laughs) So I think you can kind of infer what he's trying to contrast. And in the chart I gave you, I have the idea of Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion. Why did I put that there? Because Hebrews chapter 18, verse 22, talks about Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above. So you have this contrast of the law versus the promise. We are promised the new Jerusalem. Now, Paul doesn't write that, but we know that in our 
understanding of the totality of Scripture now. But you have the present Jerusalem and then the Jerusalem from above. He's trying to show that one is of the flesh and the other is of the Spirit. Law versus grace. Then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, where he, Isaiah is actually writing to the captives in Babylon saying, you know, you will flourish. But it's interesting, he picks out the idea of a barren woman. So he's making the connection to Sarah as the barren one, that you, you will flourish. So that's, that's that connection. And then verse 28, now you are, if you take out the stuff in between the commas, he says, now you are children of promise. And notice down in verse 31, so we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So you go, you are, we are. He's not just speaking as a preacher pointing at everybody and go, oh, you bad people. He brings himself into this. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You are not forgotten slaves. You are adopted children, fully vested in the family of God. As those of you here a couple weeks ago, I spoke at length about the idea of adoption, especially in Roman society and that nine of the Roman emperors were adopted and what Rome, what it meant to be adopted in Rome was not to be adopted as a child, but to be adopted as an adult. And you could not be disavowed once you became an adopted child. Paul is emphasizing this again. By the way, I was able to tell that little anecdote at least a half dozen times to different people at that conference. Some Bible study teachers, one a New Testament professor at Regent. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture of what we are. We are fully adopted into the family of God. Co-heirs with Jesus. Everything. And he's saying that you, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him. So too it is now. So also it is now. That's a little tiny reference. Idea that persecution is coming. They didn't necessarily have it easy in Galatia just because they changed and became Christians. They were persecuted by Jews. They were persecuted by the Judaizers. They were persecuted eventually by the Romans. This wasn't a happy choice. But he's referring to it. What does the scripture say? Not... Not the most friendly action, but cast that out. Get rid of it. Divest yourself of the idea that you can save yourself. Cast that idea out. 
Roman Genesis 21. This is exactly what happened. They got rid of Ishmael and Hagar. Got them out. Just gone. And of course, if you watch and look at the lineage, you have the conflict between the Arab and the Jew still today. It goes all the way back to Ishmael and Isaac, Sarah and Hagar. This isn't golf where it's a mulligan and you get to do over. You can't, there's no second chance here. It's done. Now we deal with a broken world that Christ came in to redeem. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. By the way, how many more sons did Abraham have? Anybody remember? I didn't remember this. I had to look it up. But he had more. It's six more. Lots of them. An entire brood. They had to build an addition on the home or on the tent. Uh, but after Sarah died, he married Keturah. And they had six more sons. Um, which I thought was interesting. So, the text continues, however. goes to to chapter 5, verse 1. Now, some commentators break chapter 5 all the way to verse 12 in their first section. Uh, Some actually take verse 1 and stick it up in chapter 4. There's a lot of different ways of approaching the, the text. I was trying to gauge how much time I'd be speaking on this topic, so I limited it just to the first six verses. I'm kind of glad I did. Because it allows us to, again, slow down and really look carefully at what's trying to be said here. It seems fairly straightforward. But I want to start with verse 1 of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So it sounds pretty straightforward. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Woohoo! Good old American know how. That just sounds very patriotic, doesn't it? I mean, we could plant a flag on that. Obviously, that's not what Paul's talking about. It is interesting, however, if you think about it, since tomorrow's Memorial Day, you have the idea of honoring those who gave their lives in as a sacrifice for freedom. The watchword of America has been freedom. So we tend, as those of us who have lived and breathed the American ideal and the American way, we take that word freedom and we apply it to the United States. It's a very easy thing to do. Very common thing to do. And so how do we define freedom? How do we define freedom? It's not rhetorical. I want you to tell me. How do we define freedom? Do anything you want to do. Okay. It's 
So why are there laws? Because if today it's illegal to marry someone of the same gender, and tomorrow it's legal, hmm. Or if today you go to jail if you have a certain amount of marijuana in your possession, but if we change the law, now it's okay. So can, I mean, I don't want to get off on the tangent too much, but we can do what we want except when it's against the law, right? But we can change the law. So what is freedom then? Because freedom suggests there that there's limitations to our freedom. You think I have the answer? <laughs> You're waiting for me? <laughs> You're waiting for me. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> Because if Paul is saying here, for freedom, which means that's the end game, this is the purpose, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now remember what the whole purpose of Galatians is about. The difference between law and grace. So we have to take this sentence and put it in that context. He is saying that if you believe that you need to follow the law, you are actually in slavery to the law. John 8, 48, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Therefore, if you are not under the law, you are under grace, you are then free from the law. But it doesn't mean, as Philip said earlier, that you then can go out and do whatever you want. In fact, doesn't Paul say, absolutely not, that's not what I'm saying. He says that earlier in chapter 3. 
I didn't say that. That's antinomianism. That means you can literally do whatever you want because you are free to do whatever you want. That's a form of narcissism, too. Our society despises anybody who says, no, you can't do that. And we stand up and go, you can't tell me what to do. I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're Great Britain telling me to bow to the king or the queen. So we have the great tea party and the revolution and all that. And yeah, now we're free. That isn't what we're talking about here. There is a distinct difference between the idea of being free in Christ than there is to have liberty or freedom politically. Unfortunately, our language doesn't allow us to use different words for the same word or the same meaning. We tend then to mix them up. And we get all tied up in the say, when we plant the Christian flag and the American flag on the same stage and go, there you go. Like, they're equal. Uh, No, they're not. No, they're not. That's not what it's saying. You can't tell me what to believe. turns into a privatism. In other words, I can believe whatever I want or I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else. I heard that when I was in construction. Um, They knew I was a Bible student, and so a lot of these hardened uh, amphetamine-taking framers and guys, they were always just pushing at me, and they would, you know, um, this idea that you can't tell me what to do, because I would say, well, that's wrong. And they would say, well, who are you to tell me that? Hmm. Well... It's not me that's saying that, it's the Bible. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Okay, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> but, you know, you kind of have to go back. Got to have some boundary somewhere, some form somewhere. The idea of being free in Christ is the idea of being free to love without condition. We are then free to express through the Spirit our love of Christ to others. It's not a, what can I get out of it? You hear the different words, I can do whatever I want. You can't tell me what to do. Hmm. Both of them are personal possessives. I, me, mine. And in Christ, it's you, yours, his. There's your difference. For freedom, Christ has set us free. The world sees our beliefs as restrictive, restraining, judgmental, where to them freedom means no limits, no guilt, no sin. And that is exactly the opposite. I've, I've struggled to find an illustration. I don't have a good one. But it's like we have these... With this amazing playground called Indian Steels Park, down on Central and Indian School, this massive park. And you could play, you can go in the buildings, you can go to playgrounds, you can just, you can just, all you want. But we run to the curb 
at Central Avenue with the light green and going, but I want to play over there. Well, why? Turn around. Look at everything you have. I've given you everything. You go, no, it's not enough. I want that because you've told me I can't have it. And he's saying, in Christ, you are totally free because it's not about you anymore. It's not about you. So you might say, okay, so don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Well, what is a yoke? No, it's not the yellow part of the egg. (laughs) It's the big, yeah, exactly. It's a way to control the ox that without it, the ox would not cooperate. And no matter what you do, if you go up to the ox and push at it, it just turns to you and go, huh, right, I'm not going that way. You put a big yoke on him, and suddenly it's yanking him. He has no choice but to go the way you're going. In Matthew chapter 11, what does Christ say? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You want to go, remember if you were... I've never forgot what I discovered when we were teaching that together. What was Christ's profession? Carpenter. And one of the things that carpenters made were yokes. The farmer would bring the ox to the carpenter, or the carpenter would take his tools and go to the farm and measure the ox. Measure the neck, the breadth, the size, all of that, and custom make a yoke so that when the ox had it on, it didn't chafe. It didn't create blisters so that they're now, they're not wanting to work because it hurts. But when Christ did it, when Christ created our yoke, it was for us so the burden is light. The yoke is easy. It's a fit. With his guidance, he then can guide us so that when troubles come, he guides us over here. He guides us over there. We're not constantly going, ow, 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 doggone it. I hate this Christian life. I'm getting rid of it. I'm done. Instead, he's saying, no, 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 no. When I am involved in this, If you have me as your carpenter, you have me as your guide. So he's saying here, Paul's picking this up and says, don't submit to that yoke of slavery, that bondage. And then Paul says, mark my words, or look, I, Paul, say to you. You can just see him handwriting that in his big letters, according to chapter 6. Look, I... Paul, am saying to you personally, begging you, if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. And you want to go, oh, come on, Paul, that's just a minor surgical procedure. What's the big deal? Seriously. It's just a little piece of flesh. Big deal. You know, relax. It's not a big deal. You forget the why of it. It's symbolic. 
Baptism, what's the big deal? It's just a bunch of water in front of people. Shoot, we can do that in the pool with a bucket. They splash you and you're good. That isn't what it means. It's a symbol. It's a testimony. So to have the circumcision or to agree to make the law primary, he is saying, if you do that, then Christ is of no worth to you. Don't do that. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to the whole law. Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. James 2.10 Let me read it. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point becomes accountable to all of it. How many laws did the Pharisees end up creating? Not 10. 613. Shoot, I forgot 498 this morning. According to the law, you are condemned forever, in eternity. Just because you forgot 498, too bad. He's trying to say, don't do that. If you do, verse 4, you are severed from Christ. That word severed is a violent word. I mean, put your hand on the table, take a knife and sever one of your fingers. You will never forget that moment. And it will remind you every time you raise your hand. It's severed. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace now. Ooh, you've been severed from Christ, fallen away from grace. <gasps> you can lose your salvation. Isn't that what it's saying? <sighs> we try so hard to prove text things that are out of context. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. He is not talking about the idea of losing your salvation. He's contrasting law and grace. If you fall to the law, you can't be in grace. That's what he's saying. You sever yourself from it. You've fallen away from that opportunity. You've given it up. I mean, he's called them brethren nine times in this book. He talks about we in verse 28 and verse 31 of chapter 4. He talks about we again in verse 5, just below that. He, he's talking about us. And he's saying, don't make that mistake, because if you do, you're not going to be under the grace of God. You cannot be. You won't understand it. And it will be too late by the time you get there. Well, Francis Schaeffer had something to say about this. Find it. The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, not the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism. It's not the threat of communism, not even the threat of rationalism or the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. All of these are dangerous, but they're not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, 
tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the power of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. So he's saying, what Francis Schaeffer is saying, you walk into a church, and if they're talking about the need to do good works to curry favor with God, you've missed the point. That isn't what he's saying. Because then you have that contrast, well, does that mean good works are of no value? No. That is the fruit of the works, because when we get later in chapter Chapter 5, what does he write about? The fruit of the Spirit. What does it look like when you understand the grace of God? It has these characteristics. But first, you have to rid yourself of this love of the law. Ray Ortland says it even more powerfully. He said, verse 4 is a warning. You want a dead church? You want a hypothetical Savior? You want grace in your doctrine, but hell in your experience? And go ahead. Go ahead and believe that Jesus gets you 99% of the way. And the last 1% is what you have to do to prove yourself. Verse 4 warns us that the real enemy of our freedom is the proud thought within that Jesus needs our help to be all he can be. Verse 4 is calling us to say to that feeling, silly feeling, go back down to hell where you came from. And it will obey your command. Because when we assert our freedom, we are preaching the gospel, which is the power of God to everyone who believes. For through the Spirit, verse 5, By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's immaterial. But only faith working through love. Of course, there was a lot of kerfluffle uh, after the recent uh, royal wedding when they had the Pastor Curry got up and spoke about the power of love. The media loves the man. Love the message. All these very anti-Christian people were saying, huh, I might start going to church if I heard messages like that. Well, what was the point of his message? If you go online, you can hear it. And I can say, you listen to him and go, well, he's not necessarily saying anything that isn't true. But it isn't the truth with a capital T. Because what he is saying is from the old song, what the world needs now is... (laughs) What the world needs now is Jesus Christ. Not love. He is love. He is love. Exactly. Exactly. We must, this is how um, Timothy George wrote it. He said, We must guard against the misunderstanding that only faith made perfect in love leads to justification. This is a distortion of the relationship between faith, love, 
and justification. In speaking of justification, Paul never talks of faith and love, but only of faith as receiving. Love is not an additional prerequisite for receiving salvation, nor is it properly an essential trait of the faith. On the contrary, faith animates love in the work that it does. So when you have a preacher who is very much into social justice and social gospel, he's saying, see, the works that we do, feed the poor, um, you know, uh, rail against the president of the United States, rail against anything. Oh, yeah, they, you know, he has to have gay pastors and, and gay marriage and, and, oh, yeah, no, you know, abortion's okay. All these things, that's social justice in the name of love. And on the other side, the gospel is saying, you know, if you love, it is out of the faith that we have in Christ first. Not that. That's working your way to heaven. Well, I could keep going on, but we've hit our, our limit. So let me, uh, let me end our time with a brief word of prayer. Lord, thank you for our time together, for opening our eyes to how the Scripture is used to comment on Scripture. And it's consistent. From Genesis all the way over here to Galatians, we have the consistent message of faith counted as righteousness. And that we need to remember, constantly remind ourselves that that tension between law and grace is very simple. And yet, as Paul has said, let us not fall into that bondage, that yoke of slavery to the idea that we have anything to do with it. But because of the grace that you have given to us that has filled us with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can show your love, your grace to those around us in ways that on our own would be impossible. Thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.